0: Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. <music> Chapter 5, Deployments and Professional Development with Lieutenant Commander Billy Holt. Hello my name is Lieutenant Commander Alex Juan and with me today is Lieutenant Commander Billy Holt. Hey Billy, how you doing?
1: I'm doing well Alex great to be here.
0: Hey, thanks so much for agreeing to uh, be a be a test subject in this podcast series. I wanted to talk to you in particular, about lots of these these jobs that you've held as a lieutenant, uh, and you know see if we could flesh out uh, the details and the context of these jobs so you know other lieutenants that might be considering these can kind of have an idea of what they'd be getting themselves into. How, do, how does that sound to you?
1: No, that sounds great, and first of all, I just want to say. Thank you for, for inviting me to, to chat with you, and I'm excited about what you're getting started here and looking forward to listening to some of the others and, and hopefully learning some things.
0: Well, uh, so Billy, you've just a quick run-through of your bio. You started at NILSO Northwest. Uh, at the time, there was NILSO's, uh, and then you worked at Whidbey Island. You went to Iraq with Task Force 134 and did detainee ops. You were one of the JAGs at uh, Surflant in Norfolk. And You deployed with Fibron 6. You were then with uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, or DEVGRU, as people like to call it. And then after that, you were at Rilso Southeast as the PDO, and now you're at graduate school at University of Virginia studying international law. Is that pretty much it right here? Yeah, you got it. Okay, let's start with kind of the the job that everybody's heard of, but nobody really knows much about your, your time with Naval Special Warfare Development Group. Uh, you were there in, from 2011 to 2014. Uh, what, what does a JAG do there? How does a JAG fit into the, the DevGrew mission?
1: Sure. So I'd say it, it, it actually changed uh, quite a bit the, the summer that I got there in 2011 in a, in a pretty cool way. Uh, Admiral Dorenzi had approved growing the the number of JAGs that that work there from three to five. And so when I got there in summer 2011, my billet and and, and another uh, officer, Matt Wooten, with me, we were two new positions. And and the reason they did that was in order to have four lieutenants and then one senior uh, officer, either an O5, senior O5, or an O6, depending on on where they're at there, so that the lieutenants could be linked up with the the deploying. Uh, operational squadrons and and sync up with their cycle because uh, that command there it's, it's very very high op tempo uh, and, and they, they kind of go through uh, this 16 month cycle of, of training for four months deployed for four months back home four months deployed again four months and so when we were able to grow to, to five attorneys there each of the lieutenants got to sync up with one of those squadrons and, and that really, allow the JAG to, to fit into the mission in, in a really special way because you had so much time with them, both throughout the training cycle and on the undeployment that you developed a level of closeness and trust that, that that's pretty unique uh, amongst SJAs for, for operational commands. By the time I left there, the squadron I was synced up with, I had done legal assistance for practically every guy in the squadron uh, and, and forged some really strong relationships, and it, and it really makes the JAG able to generate more value and, and contribute more to the mission. And it it also makes the the job a lot more rewarding for, for the lieutenants that get to work there.
0: So you were kind of the jag for that particular squadron. You stayed with them the entire time you were at DevGrew. That's right. Yeah, that's, that,
1: that, that's the plan. And when you're back home and you're in garrison, you know, those guys, sometimes they might be going on jump trips or, you know, doing all kinds of kind of fun stuff. And sometimes you can, you can jump on those too and, and get, get some of that fun. But when you're not doing that, then you're carrying a lot of the, the, the standard uh, SGA type duties. So you're working back in garrison and you're, you're doing investigations and ethics and, and the discipline for, for, for the rest of the command. But then once they deploy, that's it, you, you go with them, you go down range wherever where may be. And, and you're supporting their operations full time.
0: Okay. When you say supporting their operations, how much of that are you allowed to uh, discuss in an open forum? Like, what does that mean?
1: So, I mean, it depends a little bit on, on where they're going. We can't get really mm-hmm. into the to the specifics for, for, for what their, their their missions were, but you know, the, the kind of things you would imagine that 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 seals are doing mm-hmm. <laughs> overseas, ca- capturing, um, you know, high value targets. It's taking detainees, interrogating them, exploiting them, and, and, and so on uh, in, in those kinds of missions.
0: How is the, the work with DEVGRU different or similar to work with uh, other Naval Special Warfare groups?
1: Well, I, so we had a really good working relationship, with, especially with the East Coast, the, the group Jags out of Little Creek, and then also with all the Jags at for Com uh so i think th- there is a fair amount of overlap the the communities do have pr- pretty- similar missions the the jobs at DevGrew, just they they differ in terms of kind of the i'd say the the amount of time you spend away you' you're you're gonna if you're if you're at that command you can expect to be go on more more than you are home and then that's not really the case as much with the other n s w jobs uh and then the nature of some of the the questions you get they they really do vary because some of the missions are a little different, authorities are different, and so it's, it ends up being a little bit more of, of a niche practice that you have to learn when you get there. Whereas the the other NSW jobs, you get a little bit more of a standard set of SJA kind mm-hmm. of problem set that you're that you're working through. Uh, but both are both are phenomenal jobs, and I know the the Jags that were at the groups had had a great time and got a lot of learning and and, and reward out of being there.
0: What, uh, what was your um, most favorite and kind of least favorite thing about the job?
1: Sure. I, well, I'd say actually it's probably the same thing. Uh, it, it was both my, my most and least favorite, and that was the like really learning how to be okay with being uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. I, I checked in along with, with Matt Wooten uh, on a Friday, and, and the following Monday we were shipped off to, to see her training, and, and you're, you're pretty uncomfortable going through that training. And I really think for three years that level of discomfort didn't abate very much. Uh, you know, it might <laughs> might have changed a little bit in the nature of it, but, but comparing it with with other SJA jobs that I had af- after a while, you can start learning the, you know, the rules of the game and the ballpark that that, that you're playing in, and you kind of understand roughly where the questions are going to come from and and what their nature is going to be, and, and just working a degree that never happened <laughs> for three straight through uh-huh. for three years. It was. It was like learning how to play basketball, but on ice skates or something gotcha. along those lines. Something totally unfamiliar, always a little bit of a, a, a wrinkle and a twist. And that I just love the way that that challenged me to to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it made it made the job pretty pretty relentless. And you know, by the time you get through the three years there, yeah, you know, you're, you're you're pretty tired and 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 ready for for a little bit of a change. But but it certainly stretched me and made me comfortable recognizing that that. You need to be in that discomfort in order to grow.
0: Gotcha. So uh, you were in your third tour when you were there. Is that kind of the normal cycle for lieutenants?
1: That is. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you typically you got folks and and I think it, it probably will change over time with what they're screening for. When when I was screening, pretty much every lieutenant had had already done a deployment and had probably had some SGA time that was gonna be raising their hand. Mm-hmm. It, it, that may change a little bit now with, with not quite as many de- deployment opportunities uh, out there, but typically what, what they're looking for is someone with uh, a couple tours under their belt, some time showing that, that they can be a good SGA. Hopefully, if they have had an opportunity to deploy, show that they could perform you know, in, in that kind of environment, and then just superior performance throughout. That, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of what they, what they want to see.
0: Yeah, so that kind of hits my next question of uh, what's, uh, you know, what characteristics would um, a judge advocate have that would make them fit best with the DevGrew mission?
1: So I thought long and hard about Mm -hmm. this while I was there, because I got to take lead uh, on the peer level, at least in in running the screening for the lieutenants for two years in a row, Uh, Mm -hmm. both picking my replacements and then running it right before I was out the door for the folks that would come in the year after me. And and, and kind of thinking through which, what what are we looking for? What what's the best people? Because there's way more than than enough qualified uh, folks in the jag Corps that would absolutely do a great job there. So it's kind of just picking what what is the best fit. And, and what I narrowed it down to, what I was looking for, at least for my recommendation for who'd be good there, was you got to be a really good teammate. You have to be somebody who it's your nature to look out for for, for those around you and to help them out. That can't be something that you're just you're, you're doing it for show it has to has to really come from 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 your makeup mm-hmm. and that's not the easiest thing to screen for but you can get a decent sense of it when you spend a week or two with folks doing the screening mm-hmm. and then the second point is to succeed there you have to really love this uh, you have to love being a jag, love being an SGA, love love the Navy's mission. I think if you're motivated by anything besides just absolute pure love uh, for this, you're gonna burn out because mm-hmm. The work is so rigorous. Uh, the the demands really choke out most of the other kind of pursuits you'll have in your life at that time. Uh, and it's not the kind of place that has a lot of external reward because mm-hmm. everybody that's there is a superstar in their own community. And so it's not the kind of place where just doing a great job, you're going to get a whole ton of pats on the back. So you really need to be internally motivated. And I think the folks that that succeed the most, they are the ones that, that that they're doing this really out of love, and that's their motivation
0: gotcha. you deployed multiple times with uh DevGuru. you also deployed with uh fibron six when you were at, were you attached to surflant at the time yeah, i was okay well let's switch over let's switch over to that to more kind of you know a, a different type of naval deployment i guess the you you deployed with operation unified response, which was um humanitarian assistance for the earthquake in Haiti. Tell us a little about that. Like what was your responsibility in the mission and how did you fall into this?
1: Sure. So the at that time the lieutenants at Surflant were filling most of the ARG deployments uh, billets. So, you know, that's a little different now. Now now fleet forces will will go out and they'll recruit out of all the RILSOs and allow people to nominate. But this was a a different time in you know 2010 we were still sending tons of lieutenant jags over to iraq and afghanistan and so uh there wasn't wasn't the same level of of, of push to get these and so typically the surf land lieutenants would just take them and you'd take turns getting them and this one kind of came about unexpectedly i was uh scheduled to deploy with fibron 6 but not until later in the summer, and then. Uh, in January 2010, the earthquake happened, and, and I remember coming into work and talking with Kevin Holiday Hannah, who, who was my boss at Surfland at the time, and we realized that Fibron 6 was going to get tabbed to go run the ARG that was going to get sent down there. And so I had really just started to integrate with, with the Fibron and get prepared to do the workups and get ready for the summer deployment. Uh, and I just asked Captain Hannah if, if, if he thought the Fibron would be interested in having me and 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 if they would want me to come and help. And we didn't really know exactly what I'd do at the time, and neither did the Fibron, thankfully. So that gave me a little bit of time and space to see the, the operation unfold and see mm-hmm. the ways that I could contribute. But it was – it wasn't – because it wasn't a planned thing, there was not a whole lot of – uh, definition for, for what my roles and my responsibility were. And it was something that I had to figure out on the fly.
0: Gotcha. Well, you know, let's step back for a second. So we're throwing out a lot of terms that some people may not have heard. Uh, there's, there's a Fibron, there's an ARG. Can you kind of go through, you know, how those break down?
1: Sure. So when, when our amphibious ships de- deploy, typically we'll have a large DAC, either an LHD or an LHA. And then we'll have a couple other amphibious ships that will deploy with them. When they come together to deploy, they'll form an amphibious readiness group. Uh, And when they deploy, they will add on one of the amphibious squadrons' staffs will will embark, and then they'll take command. So you'll have COs of all the ships, but then you'll have this uh, Commodore that's kind of overseeing the operations for all of those ships. When they deploy, typically they'll they'll combine the ARG with uh, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is what we did for, for the humanitarian mission. And so we also you know, joined up with uh, the 2-2-MU. And together, the Commodore and the, and the Colonel who's in charge of the MU had joint responsibility for, for the humanitarian efforts that the Navy was conducting.
0: Gotcha. So a Fibron is made up of a Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MU, and then an ARG. So kind of the Navy and the Marine element and in charge yeah, of the art, the
1: the gotcha. And that's a, that's a really good, thankfully, you know, that's something you and I didn't get a lot of training on mm-hmm. coming up, but now every single one of our lieutenants is going to be familiar with that. Cause that's one of the the professional military education okay. <laughs> elements that we train them on. So, so that's something I had to learn by going and, and kind of reading through it uh, in real time uh, in, in the scope of an operation, but thankfully we're, we're preparing our attorneys better and, anybody that's going to follow in, in in those footsteps is going to be more well prepared than I was
0: so you had to kind of define your roles and responsibilities as um, as it was gearing up so what did those roles and responsibilities shake out to be like how did you uh, fit in this construct
1: sure so what I started doing and, and this is something that I learned in, in my time at Surfland was just being being present everywhere and, and attending every Every meeting I possibly can get to, whether a JAG was invited or not, you're always welcome at any meeting. Any meeting, the staff tries to tell you the JAG can't come in. That's the one you really need to be in. <laughs> um, right. So I just tried to meet everybody on the staff, figure out what was going on. What what was our operation? What was our mission? And then trying to identify any legal issues, but also just any way that I, I could really support. And and as the operation started to unfold, some typical, you know, JAG duties started to to emerge. Like I'm myself established as a claims commissioner so i can handle the claims for any of the damages that our helicopters were causing when they were landing uh, in the different areas Mm -hmm. in haiti uh we had you know cbs down there doing just amazing work clearing the roads and, and and setting up structures for people and hurting themselves so so standard kind of line of duty things but then also just some off-the-wall stuff that I never would have anticipated in, in ways that, that they'd asked the JAG to just help out. Uh, so one of the things uh, that, that really stuck with me was we, we brought a few – we were bringing a lot of people on the ship when we first got down there. We were embarked on the USS Bataan, and it has, has a pretty large hospital wing uh, you know, de- designed to, to, to treat Marines when we do big amphibious landings, but also great to do a humanitarian assistance mission. So our helicopters were bringing lots of injured folk on board. And when we first got down there, there was so much chaos that we weren't keeping very good records for, mm-hmm. for where we were picking people up from, you know, where we needed to return them to and all that. And we ended up bringing a few minor um, children on board without parents or siblings or anybody that really could take responsibility for them, which was fine at the outset. We took care of them, but, but about a month or so into the, the operation, as these – kids were starting to get healed up and they were ready to get repatriated back to their parents. We didn't know where to take them. And, and for the first one that came up, we didn't even really know where to start. Oh, uh, this is a six year old girl. Mm-hmm. And sadly, you know, she just didn't, she didn't have a lot to, to explain to us about where she grew up, mm-hmm. what her house was, any of that kind of stuff. So we didn't have much to work off of. Uh, and it was really, Really rough trying to figure out what's the, what's the best way forward and so I leaned on my JAG command up the chain and sought some guidance and what we ended up working out was working with the government of Haiti to transfer custody to them so that she can be placed in an orphanage and UNICEF was taking lead on uh, setting up the, the, the mission for, for all the orphans uh, coming out of this earthquake and then the hope was eventually she'd be reunited with her parents through the ways that they were trying to, to reconnect folks uh, that was very unsatisfactory. Mm-hmm. Tur- turning her over, you know, really broke my heart that we had we had healed up her her broken arm, but potentially, you know, made her into an orphan just because we didn't do a good enough job of really tracking where we were taking folks from. So the next time we had a, a child ready to be repatriated, you know, I really wanted to do better by, by the person. And thankfully, this was a five-year-old boy, Robinson. Uh, and I think about him all the time. He's just a really cool little kid. He had become a rock star on the ship. All the all the sailors on the baton just loved him. They were giving him sweatshirts and teddy bears and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but he had a little bit more info that, that he could help us with. Mm-hmm. So I joined up with, with the Marine, the Jag that was with me. Uh, and together we got a Marine Creole linguist. And we interviewed Robinson and created what basically looked like a wanted poster. So we put a po- couple pictures of him on, on there and then we used the, you know, in English and Creole, a bunch of facts about him. And then we, you know, took a helicopter out to the area we thought that he had come from and just distributed these papers around town, these flyers trying to see anybody that might know the, know the person. And we found somebody that knew his dad. We went and we talked to his dad. Sure enough, he had pictures of Robinson. We took a bunch of photos of the dad and his sister's, Uh, brought him back to the ship, showed Robinson. We were able to confirm that this was definitely his dad. So the next day, we brought Robinson uh, to shore to to reunite him with his dad. And just something, you can't even script this. As we're we're going to get the father, this other guy walks up to us and says, hey, the the Americans took my sister about a month ago. Can you help me find her? And he pulls out a picture, and it's the girl that I had just turned (laughs) over to the government of Haiti. A few days prior, so oh, I said, wow. "Yeah, I actually do know where she is." And we brought him back, and we were able to link him up with the government of Haiti, and somehow <laughs> managed to to reunite both of the kids with their families. There was nothing in the, the you know the Jagman or any kind of manual that that really was helping for that. It was just trying to to do the best in, in a really weird, uncertain situation and, and try to help people.
0: Right. You know, it, it brings up such an interesting point because when you're deployed, and this happened a lot when I was in Afghanistan, you have your JAG duties. But a lot of the times you you kind of fall into these other duties uh, just because you're a capable officer and you're organized and you're smart and you're really just kind of you're good at thinking on your feet. You know, you get placed in these really awkward positions and such. And all you can really do is keep your brain moving and, 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 and try to fall back on, you know, kind of your common sense a lot of times
1: yeah no i think i think you hit it you hit it on the head there alex that, that's some of the most enjoyable parts of being an SJA, in my opinion
0: right and i think you gain more credibility as an SJA in a deployed environment or any sort of you know legal officer or whatever if you're the one that can solve problems battle space owners trust you more uh they kind of you know open the kimono a little bit and they let you in in the inner circle and then they start letting you into those meetings that you were talking about where before the door was closed and then you can really do some some good work so it's one of those things where you know you could be in the middle of it and you're like I I didn't learn any of this in law school but it eventually I feel a lot of times plays back into your overall mission of providing this legal support
1: yeah i think i think that's right it's it's something I know we throw out in SJA trainings a lot that that idea of, of get to yes, but I think that's incomplete. There's mm-hmm. a little bit more than that. It's not just you know, it's not just enabling what the commander wants you to get done. It's it's integrating yourself enough with the staff and and caring enough about the mission and really internalizing that and understanding what your command is, is trying to get done to the point where you can also see ways to to make that happen and and, and you can support in ways besides. Saying yes or no, there's a legal objection. You, you can actually contribute to to the solutions, right? Uh, and I just think that you're really maximizing the value that you're adding as an SJA when you do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have expectations going into it, or were you just kind of like, I'm going to react to whatever? Uh, you know, I'm curious to know whether uh, it was a surprise as to how things turned out, or whether you just kind of rolled with it and you know took it as it came.
1: Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. So mm-hmm. what I did uh, when it, I told you, you know, I basically just asked Cap Mahana if, if if I can go, <laughs> and yeah. he called the Commodore, and the Commodore said, "Sure, if he can be at the pier in four hours <laughs> with the sea bag, we'll take him." So I spent half of that time, you know, going and getting some boxers and a couple of yeah. uniforms and, and, and things like that, and then the second half back at the office, I just printed every AAR I could find, you know, made burned a couple CDs with with resources, so. So I had some some of that uh, preparation. I hadn't spent very much time thinking about humanitarian operations because I'd never been part of it before. hadn't been to any kind of training to to really you know open my eyes towards that. but I at least tried to prepare myself with with whatever there was out there that could help me. Once we got the operation started, we had a great jag chain uh-huh. uh, going up with you know second fleet still existed back then. They uh-huh. were helping fleet forces, the 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 Southcom uh, jags. And so I had some really good resources to to lean back on. So there was some element of preparation, but then there was a lot of th- – this mission really did catch us off guard. Yeah. And I think the Haiti earthquake was a turning point, and, and there was a recognition that we had not been capturing lessons learned fr- from these types of missions as well as we could have. And there was a major effort in the aftermath of this because this was – we thought it would be about two two to three weeks being down there. Supporting it ended up being four months, yeah. and so afterwards, I know Fleet Forces you know, took some major efforts to capture all these lessons learned. And then, when Tomodachi happened and the tsunamis that, that, that have been happening, they were much better prepared to just kind of take some things off the shelf and say, "This, this is the slew of issues you need to be prepared for." So it was sort of a, a combination of those two. It was a, a time before it would have been a little bit, you know, easier to 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 have the resources but thankfully you know we got to contribute to, to making it a little bit easier for 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 the next one
0: i still can't believe you left with 4 hours of lead time like <laughs> that's it's such a, a quintessential like you know recruiting type story like when you're when you're at the school you know and and being worldwide deployable that definitely puts a uh, a realistic bent on that that term that everybody hears <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure yeah yeah well so those are to, you know comparing that with your your dev experience I mean both are part of the Navy's mission uh, both are deployments but they're they seem to be very different on its face uh, I was wondering can you take me through uh, compare and contrast your deployment experiences and you know what you, we can even throw in your deployment to Iraq where where you worked uh, with task force 134 with detainee ops I mean kind of uh, you know synthesize that and, and tell me what's the same what's different and what are some salient points?
1: Sure. Okay. I'll try, I'll try to do my best at that.
0: Sorry. Um, That's like six questions, but, but you're a smart guy. So, uh, you know, ready, set, go.
1: (laughs) Well, so I'll start with, uh, with, with the IA. Uh, I think one of the best takeaways that that I've had from, from doing any of the joint operations is an appreciation for the difference in culture between the services. Mm -hmm. And I've got, tremendous respect for for all of the services and for for the for the jags within all the services but one of the one of the major takeaways I have anytime I've done anything joint is is a more profound appreciation for the Navy's culture yeah and, and a realization that this is the one that I belong in mm-hmm. and, you know and sort of <laughs> this is where I ended up for, for a reason so so that's one of the big ones and I, and I think it's really helpful it, that's helped me a lot uh, in the in the past few years I've taken on a more of a, a role in recruiting, and, and as, a, as a PDO, kind of took a big lead on that. And having some of the joint experience was re- was really helpful to mm-hmm. explain to to candidates some of the differences between the services and help them, you know, go to the to, to the one that might be right for for their makeup. So, and then and then the the deployments with working with special warfare. Uh, I think one of the things I've taken away that, that I want to keep in the forefront of my mind uh, uh, as I, as I hopefully stick around for, 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 for longer and get to become more senior and, and, and be in leadership roles is, is the concept that, that they're driven by all throughout special operations is the idea that higher headquarters exists to support the, the mission accomplishment of the units below them. And there's no other reason to create a higher headquarters other than to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I, that I had never come across uh, mm-hmm. prior to that. But mm-hmm. I really tried to let that focus me uh, when I worked at Real So Southeast headquarters and had mm-hmm. branch offices that, that I'd be calling to to try to support and and, hit, and get information from. And and I really think that that's a that's a big lesson and, and really important uh, to, as a as a leader to to understand that. So so that you're approaching the, those. Elements below you in the right mm-hmm. way. So if I ever get to have the chance to be, you know, an ISIC jag or something along those lines, I really want to remember remember that and internalize it. It's
0: mm-hmm. a great takeaway. What what is a key takeaway from your um, from your time with Fibron six?
1: I mean, that was my first real integration to the Navy. You mm-hmm. know, to that point, I think I, I had about three years in. I had had done an IA and, and had spent time at and also, you know, doing legal assistance and defense, but but the four months that I finally got to, to spend on the ship and, and integrate th- with the staff and get qualified as a staff watch officer that really stoked my fire for for wanting to stay Navy and, and for loving it. And mm-hmm. ever since I left there, I've been raising my hand every chance I could to to, to get some sea duty. And finally, coming out of school, I, I get I get to do it. Um, and that was that was my di- my biggest takeaway was just how special it is to to be out in the middle of the ocean and. and the, the bonds that you get to form with, with the folks that are around you, the pace of, of life that you have, it's just something that you can't compare that to, to any other way that people live their lives. Uh, and I think if we've got a chance to do that we, we've got to take advantage of that every chance we can.
0: If you found yourself running into people that you were uh, deployed with? Oh, yeah, all the
1: time. actually, one of my the the deputy uh, ops officer for, for for Fibron six is a jag now. Is that uh, right? Yeah, Benita Stentiford. She was her name was she she wasn't married yet then, so uh-huh. she was Benita Williams. So I think her her married name now is Stentiford. Last uh-huh. I heard, she was in in Norfolk. But uh-huh. yeah, we crossed paths. She <laughs> she found out she got picked up for the LEp program while we were down in Haiti.
0: Oh, that's awesome! It really becomes a smaller Navy, doesn't it? Like the longer you stay in, and and we for haven't sure. even been in that long.
1: Oh, well, I, actually, another one. I. Uh, just started taking the spring semester courses here at UVA and my professor for law of armed conflict is a retired navy captain Brian Bill and he was my boss in Iraq
0: 10 oh, years ago. Jesus. <laughs> How are you liking school?
1: Oh, I'm loving it. This yeah. is this is absolutely the one of the best years I've had so far yeah. and I pinch myself every day that that, that the navy sent me here to you know, take a step back and and have the time and space to to look at all the different things that that we work on, but from a different perspective. Uh, I really treasure this time.
0: What sort of classes are you taking?
1: So it's, I'm I'm really glad that that I found out where I was going um, for my next tour um, early on because mm-hmm. it's it's allowed me to really focus in my studies. So I'm definitely. Focusing in on international law, but trying to even within that focus what I research and and what I really dig into on the on the Pacific area to try to try to prepare. So so I'm taking uh, law of armed conflict, international law and the use of force, um, environmental law, national security and information. I got to take two classes with Professor John Norton Moore, who's just a living legend. He was the very first professor of national security law. He negotiated the Law of the Sea Convention in the late 70s, early 80s. And so I got to study Ocean's Law and uh, a seminar that he runs on war and peace uh, last semester. And then
0: those were were awesome. So far, we've covered your deployment, your time with DevGrew, with uh, Surflant and Fibron 6. Uh, We kind of talked about your deployments and takeaways and such. Well, let's let's talk about your your very first tour and then your very your most recent tour before school. You started off at um, Whidbey Island, Nilsen Northwest, doing defense and legal assistance, and then your last tour before you went to school. Uh, it's kind of this bookend Nils tours. You were the the PDO, the Professional Development Officer at Nilsen Southeast. What makes a good PDO, you know, what what type of person would would be a good PDO? Uh, well, I can just speaking
1: from personal experience, I I did not self-select. I mm-hmm. didn't really I had just spent the, you know, the 3 years at, at DevGrew, so was uh, you know, kind of lost a little bit of touch with with a lot of the changes that had been going on in NILSK. And I had read all the Jack news as they came out, but it just wasn't at the forefront of my mind. So, so I didn't have a good sense of what the PDO was when I was going through that detailing cycle and it wasn't something that I was really, you know, had visibility on until Mm -hmm. the detailer recommended that I consider it. And I talked to, talked to my mentors and and really thought it sounded like it'd be a really neat way to contribute and, and and something that I'd want to do. So it wasn't, it wasn't even on your list. No, not, not my initial list. No. Um, And I, frankly, I would not have been able to really articulate exactly what the, what the PDO does you know, at that point until I had done a little bit more research, uh, uh, and then decided to to raise my hand for it and, and, and try to, you know, pursue it. Uh, but it's something that I've thought a lot about as far as you know, I've talked to a bunch of people that were interested in it since, since, since I was in the, in the seat, I'd get a lot of calls for people that were considering and put it on their list. And I really think that, you know, every single, JAG that's, that's been successful enough as a JAG to, to, to make it to a Fort has all the tools to succeed as a, as a PDO. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's going to make somebody, make somebody a good PDO or make their PDO tour something that's really enriching to them and and, and develops them is, is going to be determined by how you approach the job, which, which I don't think is that different than any other assignment. So, you know, the PDO job specifically, there's a, there's a very heavy administrative burden that comes with the job because you're tracking all of the training, the PDS. You typically end up handling a lot of administrative things just for, for the real self that, that that aren't even necessarily associated with the training. And it and it's enough of a burden that I think you could you could fill your day just, just handling, you know, the tracking and the administrative side and 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 call that mission success. And in doing so you would definitely be adding tons of value to, to your RILSO and to the JAG Corps. Um, but I think if you approach the job with a little bit more, uh, you know, of a broader vision for what it could do, and you can see just the really cool opportunity you have as a PDO, somebody outside of all the different departments, but who touches everybody throughout the command, um, and see that that opportunity that you have to make everybody at the real cell better to, 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 to help put every single person in, in that command in a, in a better position to give their best and, and, and to really contribute everything they possibly have. If if you kind of reform form your role in, in that kind of a mindset, it could be a much more rewarding job and, and, you, and you might succeed a little bit more as a PDO if you look at it that way.
0: So the mission was to improve everyone, not just the first tours.
1: Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's. I think it that that might have been some of the misconception when when the program was f- first rolled out because it was rolled out at the same time as the FTJA program. Mm-hmm. But the vision for the PDO is absolutely you're the PDO for all of the core lieutenants. You're the PDO for your peer department heads. You're the PDO for the XO and CO, and and you've got some responsibility to continue to work on their professional development. The CMC, uh, that's something that I really would have to continue to recenter myself on because I I recognize a little bit of the, the danger of creating a program where there's so much emphasis on training first tour judge advocates that the moment you transition, you go from month 24 as a, as a first tour, then you go to your second tour, you're in month 25. And there, there is a little bit of risk there that, Mm -hmm. that you kind of fall off of the radar in terms of getting the attention and mentoring and development and training that you need. Uh, and so I think it's important for, for, for the PDO to recognize their, their scope is, is beyond the, the, the first tour it really is taking care of everybody at the command and, and you gotta be mindful uh, of making sure that that happens.
0: It's such an all encompassing job because the, the way to achieve that mission at the different levels, uh, just must require like completely different courses of action.
1: Oh, for sure. And then. You know that, and that's just talking within RILSO and, and the DESO. But I think to to do the job right, you also need to be, you know, opening the aperture more broadly and, and looking at all the other, you know, JAG community individuals in, in, in the neighborhood. So, mm. especially in the southeast, we had a lot of second tour lieutenants going to really off-the-grid kind of assignments in mm-hmm. Oklahoma, at the NIAC in Georgia, mm-hmm. and there's nobody looking out for those guys. If, right. if the PDO is not picking up the call and making sure they're seeing trainings that are coming up, making sure they're having somebody help them with their CSB package, mm-hmm. you know, they may not get any mentorship. And that's the the mm-hmm. last thing we want to have happen, is, is we send somebody, we trust them to go, you know, work really independently, but then we forget to, to really reach out and, and continue to do it. So I think the the PEO just has such an amazing opportunity to to fill that gap and, and take care of folks.
0: So you took care of all, uh, or you looked out for people of every level. But you know, a bulk of the people were these first tours. They're, you're kind of their their guide or their ment their built in mentor almost. Describe to me what makes a really good first tour. What's in a successful first tour for a, for a judge advocate?
1: All right. Well, I, don't know, I think I may answer a slightly different question than sure, what you please. asked, uh, Alex. I think because I don't know if I'm even in a good position uh-huh. to say, say 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 who are the, you know, what makes it really good first but I uh-huh. will share what I ended up, it took a little bit of while to, to develop it, this, but how I would explain to folks that would ask me, hey, what do I need to do to succeed? What mm-hmm. what advice do you have for me as they're coming out of NJS, you know, or maybe they're six months in before they realize it'd be a good thing to ask and, and kind of ask for guidance on what are the kind of things I should really focus on? And what I eventually came to to tell them is, you know, pretty much two things. The first is just whatever you're given right now. Just crush it, crush your task that's in front of you, and that could be your PDS, your first admin board, your first guilty plea. It could be the XO wants you to take lead on a hail and farewell, and you need to find a venue, and you need to develop a good email and invite people and do that. Whatever it is that that you're working on right now, just do that to your best of your ability and show you know, just how capable and how much initiative and issue ownership you really have. And that was really responding to one of the themes that, that I kept seeing coming up um, that the lieutenants would ask me about is is they would feel as though, hey, I'm not making an impact or I'm not making as big of an impact as I want to. I feel like I'm kind of – I'm stuck in this time when I'm supposed to be training, but but I really feel like I've got more to offer. And I love that. And that really resonated with me. I I know that I had that attitude when when I was in in their position too. And so what I was trying to just help instill was a little bit of patience in that process and recognizing that you're not from day one immediately going to get put on the high profile trial. You're not going to necessarily be put in those positions that you want to be in and that you know you've got the heart for, you've got the brain for, and and you're going to work your butt off. Uh, but instead you show us you can handle this task and mm-hmm. then we're going to give you a slightly bigger task and a slightly bigger task and then something unexpected may come up and we may need to send a lieutenant to go investigate you know, something high visibility like the, the Chattanooga reservist mm-hmm. you know, shooting that happened and we sent a couple first tours but they had established a lot of trust by just doing a phenomenal job at some of the smaller things and then that just builds on itself and so that's I know that's much easier advice to give than it is to receive and take on board and follow. But that was that was step one that I would tell people. And then step two was just take care of each other and, and and build that habit right now, right at the beginning, when you might not even feel like you have that much to offer the guy to your right or your left. You don't even know how to help your legal men succeed at what they're doing because you don't quite even understand what they do yet. Mm-hmm. But just help. Just yeah. do it. Just develop that instinct and make that – a priority because everybody around you is going to notice they're going to be made better and at the end of the day i truly believe you're going to you're going to love your job way more than mm-hmm. if that's not your way of interacting with your peers i really think that if any, anybody takes those two things on board they're going to crush their first tour and, and and they're going to be right where they need to be
0: let me ask you this if you could jump in a time machine like you know heat up the flux capacitor. Uh, jump in the DeLorean and go back to uh, 2006. What would you tell Lieutenant Junior Grade Billy Holt? Like, what sort of advice would you give him?
1: No, I definitely would have to give myself a strong dose of my own advice, especially mm-hmm. on part one. Uh, you know, I like I like to think I had. You know, I, part two came kind of natural to me. Mm-hmm. I I had the benefit of getting sent to to Whidbey Island, you know, remote branch office, mm-hmm. which we don't do that anymore. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to get sent there for their first tour because because they're going to go to Bremerton. Um, but I got sent there with a really awesome jag uh, Jamie Head, who he's he's out of the, the the Navy now, but I still remain really good friends with him. So we were out there together and really didn't know what we were doing. And our advice from from our CEO at the time was, "Hey, I trust you guys. Do your best. Just don't burn the place down." And <laughs> and very first week we were there, we almost did because it was uh, the the building we were in was World War II era. It was an old um, clinic, and it had these fans that you know, one of them shorted and started smoking and <laughs> the fire department finally came and they realized we didn't have any sprinklers in the building, <laughs> it wasn't up to code and we really weren't even supposed to be working in there. Um, <laughs> so it kind of started <laughs> at that level. Um but we we learned right from the beginning. We just had to take care of each other. And anytime I learned something, I would tell him he learned something, he would tell me so we can learn the job twice as fast. Because mm-hmm. we just needed to. Right. Uh, but but I definitely could have used a lot more patience. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when I came in, we were sending you know, f- probably between a quarter and 50% of the, the lieutenants in the NILSO were either about to go to Iraq, in Iraq, or had just gotten back from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. That was a big motivator for me to, to, to join when I did. Uh, so from moment one, every single time one of those downwind billets would come out advertising a, a deployment opportunity, I would call the XO. Uh, and he would see my phone number come up on you know the the info and pick up the phone and tell me <laughs> what he'd said before. You need to wait a year, Holt. We're not going to send you <laughs> until you know something about the Navy. We're not going right. to send you over to Iraq. It doesn't make sense. and i wasn't I wasn't really appreciating it at the time, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I know that that year learning what this was all about, learn learning how to wear my uniform, how to how to address people how to do some basic research, all that stuff was necessary preparation for me to then succeed mm-hmm. when I did get that opportunity to, to deploy. And it's it's so hard to see that when you really just want to be somewhere else and, and, you, and you think you've got something to contribute. But that'd be the biggest takeaway. If I can go back and, and, and help myself learn that 10, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. I, I might have been a little bit more patient and you know a lot less of a pain in the neck for my chain of command.
0: So, uh, next tour for you after school is, is what?
1: So I'm heading to Japan, uh, to work at strike group five, uh, which embarks on the Ronald Reagan.
0: Okay. Are you excited?
1: Oh, I I'm ecstatic. Oh, yeah. I, I can't believe I have this opportunity. It's, uh, it's exactly what I've, i wanted to do my, my whole career and, mm-hmm. and to get the chance to do it. I mean, it's, it makes me nervous as heck because it's a tremendous responsibility, mm-hmm. and, and I don't want to mess it up. And I want to really do a good job, but but I, I couldn't be more excited to to go have that opportunity to serve. Mm-hmm. I'll be have some really big shoes to fill coming in there behind uh, Commander Jessica Pyle, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. but I'm gonna do my best.
0: So how do you how do you even start to prepare for such a such a big responsibility?
1: Well, I think this. This uh, detailing cycle is very unique being right. at school where, yeah. where my, the only purpose of being here is, is preparation and learning. So uh, finding out that's where I'm going early last fall was, was tremendous because it's given me the chance to just really focus any research projects I'm doing, papers I'm writing in on topics that are going to be relevant to, to that AOR. Mm-hmm. So that's really helped me contribute. I'm also in a great spot being here at UVA. I'm right next door to to the JAG school for the Army. So I've got resources to to CLAMO to pull AARs for the past few years, uh, deployments out there. Yeah, and I can uh, I'm working with Captain Huntley here to to get access to some of the course materials for a lot of the short courses they have here mm-hmm. to really brush up uh, on those kind of skill sets. But but all of that I know that you know, there, there really is no such thing as going into a, to a job as as an Jag being fully prepared. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist. There's yeah. so much that that you need to just be be open to the idea that you're going to need to learn it on the job, yeah. and that that's how we work. and And that's a great part of the job. I I really cherish that. I think that that that's a really that's a a feature uh, and and not a bug in the system. So so I know I won't. I'm not going to go there fully prepared, and, and I'm okay with that because I'm going to be. Uh, ready to to learn the job as I go there, uh, and then I've also come to appreciate uh, Captain Klein, my, my, my CEO when I was at Russell Southeast, really drilled home the idea that you need to to take care of yourself too. And so I think a big part of preparing for, especially for a job that's going to have a really rigorous deployment cycle for 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 the two years I'm there, keeping keeping up some some daily and, and weekly practices uh, in my life. So with with working out, doing yoga, meditating, those kind of things to to keep myself grounded and centered so that I have, you know, all that I possibly can offer to to the job and, mm-hmm. and to the Navy and to others.
0: Uh, and I
1: think that's a, a big part of preparation that it's taken me, you know, a pretty long time to really start to appreciate like I should.
0: Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, uh, you've answered all my questions here. Any, uh, any final thoughts? No, just,
1: Thank you, Alex. I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, anybody, if, if there's anything, if, if people do listen to this and anything triggers, uh, triggers an interest, they can reach out to me. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to get a hold of me, uh, and I'd love to, to talk about these kind of topics. I'm always open to talk about different jobs in the JAG Corps. It was one of the most fun parts of being, being the PDO, but I just want folks to know that, I, that I'm here to help if there's anything I can do.
0: All right. Well, uh, Lieutenant Commander Billy Holt, thank you very much. Uh, This is Lieutenant Commander Alex Wan, and thank you, everybody, for listening. You have been listening to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.